good to see all of you this morning. Thanks for being here. It's heating up in Phoenix, isn't it? But it's cool in here. So we're glad you're here this morning. Second Kings chapter 18 this morning. Second Kings chapter 18. We're continuing our series on prayer, uh, about the subject of prayer. And we're going through what I call the significant prayers of the Bible. And uh, just looking at these prayers, because we can learn a lot about prayer and about our own prayer life by examining the prayers in the Bible. And this morning we're going to be looking at King Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is one of those Bible characters that I think every Christian should become familiar with. Uh, Just a, a good Bible character to familiarize ourselves with. And you find some of his story... In 2 Kings chapter 18. Now, we're going to cover two chapters uh, today, but what we're going to do is primarily build the context of the prayer uh, and then look at Hezekiah's prayer in proper in chapter 19. So, we're not going to spend too much time. Uh, I'm just going to hit what I think are the highlights of building the context and maybe share a few comments uh, here and there, and then get to the actual prayer of Hezekiah. But what we're learning through this series on prayer is that every prayer, if you will, has a story behind it. Every prayer has a context to it of, of what you know drew that person to pray as they did, or pray about what they were praying. And the same thing is true in our lives. Every time we go to God and we talk to Him about something, there's, there's a cause, there's a reason, there's a context, if you will, for it. And we're seeing that again here in 2 Kings chapter 18. So I'd just like you to follow along in your Bibles. And uh, let's begin here uh, at the end of verse 1 into verse 2, where it just introduces us to Hezekiah. And it says, Hezekiah became king over Judah. He was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned for 29 years in Jerusalem. I want to point this out, especially to you folks who are younger, okay? Don't, as the Bible says, let anyone look down on your youthfulness. Even as a young person... You can be greatly used of God. Spiritual maturity and and one's spiritual walk has nothing to do with physical age. It has everything to do with one's heart and one's fellowship that one has with God. And we see here that though he was only 25 years of age, that God is going to write in his word Uh, about this king uh, unlike any other. So again, don't let your youthfulness, uh, you know, be something that you allow others to uh, intimidate you about. God can use you no matter what age you are, young or old. Do not let age define what God can do with your life. Notice verse 3. He did what the Lord approved. Verse 4, he eliminated the high places. 
We talked about this two weeks ago when we were talking about Solomon. And these were basically popular places of worship. Set up by the people as they desired, but not according to God's direction. And in a sense, we have a similar situation today. There are many popular places of worship that people throng to and flock to, but they're not necessarily set up the way God would desire a church or a place of worship to be set up. They are being set up as the people desire them to be set up. Notice verse 5. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel. And in this regard, there was none like him among the kings of Judah, either before or after. He was loyal to the Lord and did not abandon him. So a very glowing commentary, if you will, about King Hezekiah. Now, 14 years in to his reign, so that would make him 39 years of age now, Here's what we learn in chapter 18, verse 13. Look at it with me. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, King Sennacherib of Assyria marched up against all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. And we are now introduced to the the bad guy, if you will, in the story. The king of Assyria, whose name is Sennacherib. Don't you just love that name? In fact, some of you couples that are getting ready to have children, you know, I think you ought to consider Sennacherib, you know? Now, think of it. We don't have a lot of what happened in those first 14 years of King Hezekiah's reign, except that he obviously trusted in the Lord, was loyal to the Lord. And then after 14 years into it, again, 39 years of age, comes maybe the greatest threat to his, to his reign while he's king in Jerusalem. And again, it reminds us that, that we don't ever know when sometimes the greatest challenges of our life are going to come. We may think that, you know, the most challenging times of our life would be in our, you know, 20s when we're just starting out in our career or something like Hezekiah. But evidently Hezekiah's first 14 years really were pretty normal as, as would be normal as far as a king reigning over a kingdom. But it was only after 14 years in when he's now 39 and you might be thinking, well, after 14 years, you know, he's got a pretty good reign on things. But like there... What we learn in the Bible is, but there's things outside of our control that can happen at any time that that can bring challenges and situations into our life that we don't foresee. And that was true with Hezekiah. Notice in verse 19 of chapter 18 that the king, King Sennacherib, never really has a direct communication with King Hezekiah of Judah. He sends his chief advisor. Uh, in some translations of the Bible, uh, his title would be the Rabshakeh. I love that title. It's another good word. And basically, all the Rabshakeh was, was he was the field commander, if you will, for the Assyrian army. 
He, he was sort of all wrapped up in one, uh, what might be similar to the head of our Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, but also the one that was actually on the field directing, you know, the military campaign as well. So he was sort of a combination, if you will. And he sent by King Sennacherib to Hezekiah to begin to put fear and intimidation in this king of Judah. Notice his question at the end of verse 19. What is your source of confidence, King Hezekiah? That's a good question. In fact, that's a question all of us throughout our lives are going to have to answer, either verbally or through our actions. Where's our confidence? Who's who's our confidence in? Situations in life are going to come periodically and they're going to test that. And then in verse 20, he says, In whom are you trusting? Two very good questions. Questions, again, that you and I will have to ponder and wrestle with throughout our lives. Because as each situation and and season of life comes up, we're going to have to reevaluate that. Where's our confidence? Who's our confidence in? What are we trusting in? Who are we trusting in? And then after all that, look at verse 23. The Rabshakeh, and I'm dating myself here in just a second, all of a sudden transforms himself into the Monty Hall of Palestine. Because it's let's make a deal. Notice what he says to King Hezekiah. Make a deal with my master, the king of Assyria. Now now think of it. In these words, the Rabshakeh is basically encouraging King Hezekiah to surrender. To just give up. I, I don't really want to fight you. Even though the Assyrian army is a far superior force at this time in history to the nation of Israel. He could, at least again on paper, he could march into Judah And he could totally take the place, no problem, because there's nobody at this time on the face of the earth that's stopping Assyria. They basically are able to go anywhere they want to, conquer any group of people they want to, and no one is stronger than them. No one has been able to stand up to them yet. And yet, the Rabshakeh says to King Hezekiah, I really don't want to fight you unless I have to. Give up, surrender, give in to me. And can I tell you, as a great reminder to us as believers in Jesus Christ, that is primarily the way our spiritual enemy will attack us as well. You see, he really doesn't want to do battle with us. Maybe you think he does, but he really doesn't. He would rather get you to a place and me to a place where we just surrender and give up without a fight. And let me give you at least three reasons why. First of all, most of the time, we're going to win. Because the Bible says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And through Jesus Christ, we're stronger in him than our spiritual enemy. And he knows it. So therefore, he doesn't want to fight us there. 
Secondly, he knows that many times the spiritual battles that we go through in life only draw us closer to our Savior. They don't take us further away. And third, he understands that the lessons that we learn through our spiritual battles many times not only benefits us spiritually, but can be things that we can turn around and share with other believers to encourage them in the spiritual battles of life. So our spiritual enemy really doesn't want to fight us. Our spiritual enemy wants to get us to a place just like the king of Assyria wanted to get King Hezekiah of Israel. He wants us to surrender. He wants us to give in. He wants us to give up. And I want to say to maybe someone here this morning who might be in that place in life where you have been maybe beaten down and discouraged, if you will, by some power in your life, by some spiritual enemy, by someone in your life, by something in your life who has got you to a place where you're just about ready to wave the white flag and surrender and give up and give in, I want you to hear me say today, don't do it. That's exactly what the enemy wants you to do. You and all of us need to be reminded of the lesson that we're going to see through the life of King Hezekiah and the prayer that he prayed in 2 Kings 19 this morning. Don't give up. Don't surrender to whatever you have been surrendering to or thinking about surrendering to. Here's the message that God wants you to see today. Go over to verse 25 of 2 Kings 18. Where the Rabshakeh basically tells King Hezekiah, Oh, and by the way, as far as I'm concerned, your God's on my side. How you like that? He says, furthermore, it was by the command of the Lord that I marched up against this place to destroy it in the first. Your God told me to do this. Whoa, how would that make a follower of God feel whenever their enemies telling them, that they're just able to march through the land and devour and destroy everything, and it's because God's on their side. Maybe you begin to think, well, you know, they have been pretty successful, and it seems like things are going their way. Maybe God's not with me any longer. Maybe God is actually with them. You can start to see the demonic logic, if you will, in play here. So notice verse 35. Who among all the gods of the lands has rescued their lands from my power? How can the Lord rescue Jerusalem from my power? In other words, he's basically putting up a pretty good argument. He's saying, has anybody in the world been able to stop me up to this point? No, you know it. I know it. So what makes you think now that somehow you're going to stop me or your God is going to be able to stop me? Notice the response of the people of Judah. The people were silent and did not respond for the king had ordered them. King Hezekiah said, don't respond to him. Don't don't come down to his level. Don't get in some kind of argument with this guy. Because it's never wise to try to um, reason with demonic logic. Silence is the best reply for the allegations and taunts of our foes and our enemies. 
Let me repeat that, because so often as human beings, whether we're Christian or not, our fleshly human response is to answer back. And many times in the Bible, the Bible teaches us that the wisest response when someone is taunting and and throwing allegations our way is to walk away and be silent and take our case to God, which is what Hezekiah is about ready to do. A very wise king who is leading his people here in a wise way. Then we come to chapter 19. And in chapter 19, the first two verses, we see three things that Hezekiah does that I think every Christian should do when we are faced with some crisis or or situation in our life that seems desperate or or some season in our life that that seems to be overwhelming, overwhelming and surrounding us and starting to put a lot of pressure on us. Here's what King Hezekiah does. First of all, it says, King Hezekiah, chapter 19, verse 1, when he heard this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth. This was a way in Israel at that time of expressing great pain and grief over something. And the reason the king did this is because he saw the situation for what it really was. Jerusalem was in a desperate place and in a desperate situation and the king knew it. And that's why he reacted this way. And why this is so important, folks, is because many times in our day and age, even Christians refuse to see the situation for what it really is. They either are in denial, they pretend like it's not as bad as it really is, Or they have all kinds of ways to rationalize it. But the best thing we can do for us and for the situation is if it's bad, to actually see it as bad, you see. That's actually a good thing. We never prosper. We never get any further ahead spiritually if somehow we deny the reality of what's really there that we need to deal with. And when King Hezekiah puts on that sackcloth and tears his clothes, he's basically saying as the leader of Judah, guys, we're in trouble. Oh, that Christians today would stop kidding themselves and see the situation that we as a nation are in spiritually and that we are in in this world and that The darkness that is here. And instead of pretending like things really aren't that bad spiritually, that we wake up as the church and we see things as they really are. Maybe then, finally, Christians would begin to prioritize their lives differently. But as long as we think things are okay and I'm okay and you're okay and things are okay... Things will never change. And we will never change. The second thing that King Hezekiah does here. Notice. And he went to the Lord's temple. He goes to the house of God. Amen to King Hezekiah. 
Again, what a great example to the people. Instead of staying away from God's house, even though the times are desperate and the situation looks really bad, he goes to the Lord's house because he's not giving up on the fact that if anybody or anything could help in this situation, it's God. And instead of staying away from God's house, I'm going to God's house because I need to be in God's house now more than ever. Again, oh, that Christians would get to that place. Where we see the way that things are in the world today and the way that things are in our own country and that we would now more than ever realize how important it is that we as Christians get into God's house and hear from God, which is the next thing King Hezekiah does. Notice it says, then he sent Eliakim, the palace supervisor, Shebna the scribe, and the leading priest clothed in sackcloth with this message to the prophet Isaiah. And now he's seeking to hear from God. He's seeking a word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Let me repeat, three things King Hezekiah does here in chapter 19, the first couple verses that I think every one of us needs to do in times of desperation and crisis in our life. First of all, see the situation for what it really is. Second, seek out the Lord's house. And third, seek out a word from God. Notice in verse 6 of chapter 19, Hezekiah gets a word from the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah says to them, tell your master this. This is what the Lord says. Don't be afraid because of the things you've heard. Don't fear King Sennacherib. Don't fear his chief advisor, the Rabshakeh. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter what they say. Don't listen to them and do not fear the things that they are saying. King Hezekiah then hears that there's a little bit of a disturbance over here because of Ethiopia interfering with the plans of Assyria. And he may begin to think that somehow that this is going to distract King Sennacherib in Assyria from now focusing on Judah. So the Rabshakeh wants to make sure that they haven't given up any thoughts of conquering Judah and coming after King Hezekiah and his people again. So notice in verse 10 what the chief advisor wants to relay through his people to King Hezekiah. You tell King Hezekiah of Judah this. Don't let your God in whom you trust mislead you. Verse 11. Certainly you've heard how the kings of Assyria have annihilated all the lands. Do you really think you'll be rescued? And then he begins to list all the nations and all the kings that have been conquered by King Sennacherib of Assyria. He's basically saying, you think you're going to be spared? You think your fate's going to be any different? Let me give you a list of the people we've already conquered. Nobody's been able to stand up to us. Nobody's been able to even slow us down. We're just marching through the land, just taking whatever we want and whoever we want. Who do you think you are and who do you think your God is? This is the context of the prayer of Hezekiah. Verse 14 of chapter 19. Here's what Hezekiah does 
with this letter, this news that he gets from the chief advisor of Assyria. He took the letter from the messengers and read it. And then Hezekiah went up to the Lord's house and spread it out before the Lord. It's a great thing. You ever gotten a letter or an email or a piece of correspondence or even a piece of news that really bothered you and disturbed you? Shook you up? I would encourage you to do exactly what Hezekiah did. Take whatever news you have gotten that has disturbed you in some way and get alone with God and lay it out before the face of God. Is there something in your life that's trying to intimidate you or put fear in your life? Is there someone or something trying to make you feel small and insignificant or lacking? This is what the Assyrians were trying to do to King Hezekiah and the nation of Judah. They were basically trying to make them feel very small so that they would surrender and give up. And instead of Hezekiah making a deal and surrendering, he does what every believer in God should do. He takes whatever news they get and he takes it and lays it out before the Lord. And he begins to pray. And notice now what we're going to see here in this prayer. It's one of the greatest lessons we learn about prayer in the Bible. And that is that sometimes the best thing that can happen as we commune and communicate with God in prayer is that we are reaffirmed in who He is. That we begin to see God for who He is, just like we're encouraged to see how bad the situation really is in the same passage of Scripture. And that's exactly what Hezekiah does. Notice Hezekiah's prayer. After he spreads this letter before the Lord, Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. Lord God of Israel, who is enthroned on the cherubs, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You made the sky and the earth. Pay attention, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and observe. Listen to the message Sennacherib sent and how he taunts the living God. I want to stop there. First, I want you to see this in his prayer. Notice that he is affirming and having affirmed and reaffirmed in his life that our God is sovereign. He rules. He reigns. King Sennacherib of Assyria is not the one calling the shots in the universe. The Lord God of Israel is the one who calls the shots. And notice Hezekiah says that God, you are enthroned in the midst of the cherub. The cherubim 
are an order of angelic beings that God created. An amazing group of angels that literally have the privilege of being always in the presence of God at his throne. And Hezekiah is reminding himself, God, you are enthroned, which means, God, you have always been enthroned. You are enthroned now, and you always will be enthroned. You are in that permanent position, and no one or nothing can ever take your throne from you. You rule. You reign. You're in control. You're in charge, God. And that's something all of us need to be reminded of. That no matter what news we get, No matter how someone or something in our life seeks to intimidate us or put fear into our lives or make us feel small or insignificant or lacking or whatever that is, that we have to remind ourselves we are a child of the God who's enthroned and he rules and he reigns and he's the one that has the last word. In fact, King Hezekiah goes on to say, you alone our God. You're holy. You are separate and apart from everything that you ever created. And you rule and reign over all the kingdoms of the earth. Any man-made kingdom, God, you rule and reign over. King Sennacherib, as mighty as it may seem, as he marches through all these lands devouring and destroying other kingdoms and overtaking other peoples, Hezekiah reminds himself, even in the midst of all of this, God, you're much mightier than King Sennacherib. And if you want to put an end to him, you can do it in a heartbeat. It's totally up to you, God, because you are sovereign. Do you believe that today? That God is sovereign. That He is enthroned. That He has always been enthroned and always will be enthroned. And no one or nothing will ever be able to knock Him off His throne. He rules and He reigns. The second thing King Hezekiah affirms in this prayer is that God is the creator of this universe. Notice He says in verse 15, You made the sky and the earth. You created this universe out of nothing, God. You are unbelievably powerful. You are almighty. All you had to do was speak the word and the universe came into being. And because you created this universe, you are the one alone that has the authority and right and power over everything that you created, God. And that includes the nation of Assyria. That includes King Sennacherib. And that in your life and my life includes anything, again, that may seek to cause fear, intimidation, us feeling small, lacking, or insufficient or insignificant in our lives. In fact, in verse 16, he tells God to pay attention. Literally in the Hebrew, it means bow down, God. I, I know that you are high and lifted up. You're on your throne. But God, could you, could you just bend down and pay attention here? 
In fact, the words in verse 16 that Hezekiah uses is really a a poetic way of asking God to act upon what he is seeing and hearing. Not that he thinks God won't act, but actually just the opposite. That because he knows God sees what's going on, that God is going to act. And notice too that in Hezekiah's prayer, it's not about him or even the nation of Judah or his own reputation or his own comfort and ease. It's about the reputation and honor and glory of God when he says at the end of verse 16 to God, he taunts you, God. He defames and defies you. He acts as if you're just like every other God. He, he, he's not treating you with any reverence or respect at all, God. And I know you're not going to let that go. I know at some point, even though you are a merciful and long-suffering God, you're even going to say enough with King Sennacherib in Assyria. They have been an instrument, God, in your hands to accomplish your will in some ways. But God, enough is enough. Don't let him defy you any longer. Don't let him defame you any longer, God. Then in verse 17, in his prayer, Hezekiah says, look, God. This is the real situation. I realize it is true, God, that the kings of Assyria have destroyed the nations in their lands. Nobody's been able to stand up to King Sennacherib up to this point. But notice what he says in verse 18. But that's because they burned the gods of the nations for they're not really gods. They are only a product of human hands manufactured from wood and stone. That's why the Assyrians could destroy them. Because they were nations who did not recognize or acknowledge you. They were a nation of idol worshipers. And so they didn't have God behind them, supporting them and helping them like we do, your people. So then in verse 19, Hezekiah, in the closing of his prayer, says, Now God, really now or never God, Lord our God, rescue us from his power. In Hezekiah's prayer, he sees God as sovereign, he sees God as creator, and now he sees God as savior. God, you alone are the one that can deliver us. You are the one alone that can rescue us. There is no salvation, God, apart from you. If you don't save us, no one or nothing else can. And oh, that we would get to that place as well, where we stop seeking salvation and deliverance and rescue, not only for our initial salvation in Christ, but throughout our lives, even as believers in Jesus Christ. When we need to be delivered from the power of something, when we need to be rescued from the power of something, why do we think that anyone or anything can truly give us complete deliverance and rescue apart from Jesus Christ? There is salvation in no other name, Peter says, under heaven than Jesus. He's the only one that can completely rescue, that can completely deliver That can bring absolute salvation in each and every situation of life. And that's who Hezekiah was looking to. And so in this prayer, 
what we see is something very powerful. Again, sometimes it's the, it's the greatest thing about prayer. And that is that we are just being reaffirmed as believers in God about who He is. And that, yeah, we're not denying the desperate situation that we find ourselves in. We're able to see the situation for what it really is. But what allows us to cope, what allows us to endure, what allows us to keep on going and even face the situation and face it triumphantly and overcome it eventually is because we also see at that moment who God really is. And that's what Hezekiah was doing here. He was seeing who God really is. Is there something that's got a power and a hold on you right now in your life? That's what Hezekiah says. Lord, rescue us from his power. This king of Assyria, rescue us, God, from his hand. And sometimes as Christians, we need to pray that prayer to God as well. God, Something's got a hold of me and I can't overcome it. There's a power in my life that's got a grip on me. And I can't get up on it. But I know, God, that you are the God of salvation. You are the God of deliverance. You are the God of rescue. And because you are the creator and because you are sovereign, God, I'm laying this situation out before you. And I'm asking you to intervene and help. Because no one or nothing nothing else really can help me. I'm looking to you, God. Only you. In fact, Hezekiah ends his prayer with these words. Now, O our Lord God, rescue us from his power so that all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you, Lord, are the only God. That they will become acquainted and recognize and acknowledge that there are no other gods but you. And can I say that I think maybe the most basic tenet of theology that you and I can grab a hold of in our Christian life and hold on to that will mean the most to us is exactly this very basic element of theology that Hezekiah is proclaiming here. And that is simply this. That God is God. And no one else or nothing else is God. God is God. And everything and anyone else is not God. That's about as basic as you can get. And yet when you think about that and you consider that and you ponder that and then you begin to apply that to your life, even that basic principle of theology can be life-changing for a Christian. God, you are God. And there's nothing else that is God but you. When we approach life that way, that's going to encourage us and inspire us and motivate us to always take things to God. Because 
who greater and who bigger and who wiser, who more capable, who more able can we go to and pour out and lay out before the face of God situations in our life than God? There is no one. There's no one who can help us more than God can. And there's no one who can truly deliver us and rescue us and save us like God can. So in this desperate time in Judah's history, King Hezekiah proves to be a great leader and a great example. Yes, he sees the situation for what it really is. It's desperate. But in that desperate situation, he also never loses sight of who God really is. And he allows his time in prayer with God to reinforce and reaffirm who God is to him and in his life. And I think that's one of the great reasons why Hezekiah succeeded and prospered spiritually in his life. I would like to encourage you to follow King Hezekiah's example and do the same in your life. If there's something in your life right now that's bringing fear, someone or something that's trying to intimidate you, make you feel small, lacking, insignificant in some way, don't give in, don't give up, don't surrender to the enemy. Bring all of that and lay it out before the Lord and cry out to God and recognize Him for who He is. In just a moment, we're going to be dismissed and we're going to partake of the Lord's table today. I'm going to go ahead and ask our worship team to come. Many of you may think, well, that message today really didn't seem to align with the Lord's table. Oh, but it does. It does in this way. In the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 11 Here's what John writes. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. And in the context, it's talking about those who come to faith in Jesus Christ during the terrible time of the great tribulation that is coming on the earth. And basically, John is saying, even in those desperate times, even in those dark spiritual times, like none on earth, when the Antichrist is ruling on earth, people will be able to overcome because of the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ. You see, what we need to recognize in our lives as Christians is that Jesus Christ didn't just shed his blood and lay down his life and give up his life so that we could enter into a relationship with God and have our sins forgiven. He also shed his blood and laid down his life and gave up his life so that we could overcome. So that we wouldn't have to surrender or give in or give up to anything that we will ever face in life whether it's from our spiritual enemy or anything of this world or even our own flesh. No matter what has power or hold over us, when you walk up to that table today and you take those elements and later on we partake of those elements as the body of Jesus Christ, let's remember something. He did all of that so that you and I could be overcomers. 
so that we could have victory in our life. So that we could say back to the King Sennacheribs of our day, I'm not going to give in, give up, or surrender to you. I'm going to acknowledge who God is in my life. And I'm going to recognize that Jesus Christ came to die on that cross and be raised from the dead so that I could overcome. So that I could conquer in Jesus' name. So that I could have victory in my life and not discouragement, despair, and defeat. Rise up today in the victory that you and I can have in Jesus Christ. And as we take those elements, you take a hold of that victory that you can have in God today. Let's pray. God, use this time as we come to your table to not only recognize and acknowledge that you laid down your life so that we could have a relationship with you. So that our sin and our shame and our guilt could be cast into the sea and forgiven once and for all. But God, you also did all of this so that we could overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Enable us, God, to see that today so that we will take hold of the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. And not give in to those things that are seeking to cause fear, intimidation in our life. Seeking to make us feel small and insignificant and lacking God. Help us to see who we are in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.